Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, April 4th, 2010, and we're very glad to have you here. Uh, we'll be getting into Proverbs in just a minute, but Peggy raised a great question uh, around the whole issue of the Sabbath for uh, Noahides. What are Noahides supposed to do? Can they keep the Sabbath? What's the purpose of that, or what, what should we be doing? Uh, and so forth. And, and Peggy, I'll attempt to answer all those, and if I don't answer a specific part, or if you have a further question, just uh, please feel free to type that in. So the Sabbath is a point of Jewish law. Uh, it's halacha. Halacha is, is Torah law. Uh, that was given specifically to the Jewish people. So keeping the Sabbath is a, a very legally defined thing. And there are certain things that the Jewish people are legally uh, prohibited from doing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath generally uh, runs from uh, Friday night to Saturday night. Um, it begins, and I don't know the exact time, I think it's sunset, but I would have to check the halakha on that, but right around that time on Friday night and ends uh, on Saturday night. During that time, uh, Jewish people are uh, not allowed to do any work, and work is, is not like work like we think of work, but work is a very precisely defined thing. Uh, and so to know whether a particular activity is work or not, you have to go to the halacha. So the, uh, the way that I have understood the situation for Noahides and the Sabbath, based on uh, studies that I've had with uh, Rabbi Chait, is that a Noahide is not allowed to keep the Sabbath exactly in the same manner as a Jewish person. So we cannot do and not do exactly the things that a Jewish uh, person would do. Let me say that a different way. That it, it, sort of in totality, I can't get through the end of a, of a Sabbath and have acted exactly the same way as a Jewish person, halakhically. So for example, I need to have done some little piece of work uh, in order to have not kept the entire halakha for the Sabbath. And the reason that I'm not allowed to is because the Sabbath was a particular uh, institution, if you will, that was given specifically to the Jewish people uh, and not for the rest of the world. Now, Practically speaking, what does that mean? It means I could do everything that a Jewish person does on the Sabbath, and I could refrain from doing everything that a Jewish person does on the Sabbath, as long as at some point during the day I did one thing that was work. So if I basically mimicked uh, all the actions of a Jewish person on the Sabbath, except that Sometime during the day, I struck a match. That would be uh, basically a situation where I've then violated the Shabbat halacha for a Jewish person, and so I'm okay as a Noahide. In other words, I can't do it exactly the same way they do it, So if I, but I can do everything they do except that I need to do one little snippet of work. And then I can say that I haven't done it exactly as the Jewish people would do from a halakhic standpoint, and I'm okay. So what should a, a, a Noahide do? Well, practically speaking, it's really a day to set aside for being involved in the world of Torah learning uh, and the world of ideas. Uh, I mean, you'll also find that, that the Jewish people uh, have, you know, a, a, a nice meal together, they go to shul, uh, and so forth. Uh, so it depends on how much of that halakha and those uh, things that they do that a person chooses to do. There is no obligation of the Noahide, as far as I know, to do anything special on Shabbat. The only obligation is they can't keep it exactly in the same way that a Jewish person would. So my, the recommendation that was made to me uh, years ago by one of the rabbis was, 
you know, use it as a day that you uh, focus on for learning. That that uh, you know, you have a nice meal with with family and uh, and then you know, be involved in Torah study, uh, and that becomes the the focus of the day. The idea is to take the idea of that of of Shabbat and focus on that idea as opposed to necessarily making it something where, well, I have to do this or I have to do that or, or something like that. Um, uh, now, you've asked the question, um, if we believe in reincarnation and we believe that we're a Jewish soul, are we obligated to keep the Sabbath? So let me take that one, one step at a time. Uh, the question of reincarnation has come up before and my understanding of the rabbinical interpretation is that there is not reincarnation, certainly not like I think uh, you know some of the other um, uh, groups believe that uh, some of the other religious groups that you know you you keep reincarnating until you get it right, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and so that's a uh, going much beyond what I've just said about that would be beyond my ability to comment on, and we'd have to turn to a, a Talmudic scholar. But it is my understanding that there is uh, there is not generally reincarnation uh, in the Torah way of thinking. Now, even if there were, uh, and you think that you have a Jewish soul, well, a person may think that, but if you're not Jewish halakhically in this life, then you would not have that obligation. So in other words, you've got to go with the halakha, the, the Torah law of where you are right now. So I mean, to, to create a simple case, if, uh, if I was, uh, if it was the Sabbath, and I thought that uh, maybe in some future life or some past life or something, uh, and I'm not saying that I hold to that because I don't, uh, but if I thought that, and I thought, well, then maybe I, I you know, shouldn't strike this match because it would be a violation of, of Shabbos, that would be incorrect halakhic thinking. Because halakhically, right now, in this life, I'm not Jewish. And so I have to follow the laws and the, the obligations for a person who is not Jewish unless I go through a, a bona fide Orthodox conversion. Um, so, and let me just... Um, uh, Peggy, where can we read more about that from a rabbinic perspective? I would probably look at uh, www.masora.org, M-E-S-O-R-A.org. I haven't searched it, but I have a suspicion that in their archives, uh, Rabbi Moshe Ben Haim, who's the driving force behind that site, probably has addressed. Uh, the reincarnation issue, and I think probably the uh, Noahide uh, Shabbat issue. And, and if he hasn't, uh, then email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com, T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G-D-Y-N-A-M-I-C-S.com, and I will try to come up with a, uh, a different source for you. And I will just quickly put that email address on the screen so you can see that. Okay. Um, Naomi, you mentioned Shem taught Abraham the Torah, and Abraham was keeping the Shabbat, so Shem being the first son of Noah, another name is Shemaiah, uh, grandfather of Abraham. Um, yeah, and I don't know to what degree he was keeping the Shabbat because the detailed law had not been given at that point. The law had not been given at Mount Sinai. So when we say that Abraham was keeping the Shabbat, I don't know how, you know, how far that goes. However, the, it is my understanding from the rabbis that the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai was the definitive... Um, I guess, uh, uh, rendering, if you will, uh, of the law at that point. And so what was done before then didn't really matter after because the event at Mount Sinai established this is the law going forward. So even if Abraham did, you know, something uh, that may be slightly different, 
the the giving of the law of Mount Sinai was the definitive event, and everything from a halakhic standpoint then comes from Mount Sinai forward. Um, so, it, I mean, it is possible that Shem and Noah kept the, the Sabbath in one form or another, but again, they didn't have uh, the uh, revelation that Moses was given at Mount Sinai, and that's what we are responsible to uh, go from. And, and Peggy, you've, you've asked, is it okay for you to go on a family field trip? As far as I'm concerned, absolutely. Uh, you, you have no restriction. It's not like you have to stay home or you can't drive your car or, or uh, anything like that. A Jewish person is restricted in those things, but a Noahide is not. Uh, so there are no specific Shabbat restrictions uh, that I'm aware of or that I've heard the rabbis speak about other than that you can't keep um, the Sabbath in exactly the same halakhic manner as the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, Peggy, I'm assuming your question about did Noah keep the Sabbath um, is aimed at Naomi, and I do not know the answer to that or whether he did. I would have to uh, dig into that. I don't know a source. Uh, there may be one in the Talmud, but uh, I have not heard that. So, Naomi, if you have a, a source for that, uh, if you can share with, that with us, that would be great. Um, and Peggy, I completely understand. None of us has all the answers, and we're, you know, I've been working at this for 20 years, and I'm still uh, still have lots of questions. Uh, okay, Naomi, thanks. You uh, read that from a midrash. Um, that would probably be one we'd want to get a rabbi to take a look at because sometimes the midrashim mean something figurative and not literal, and so we have to be careful how uh, how we interpret those. Um, sometimes they're literal, and sometimes they're written in a way to uh, to communicate an idea to folks, uh, but weren't meant to be taken literally. And I. We'll have to say that's not an area that I'm an expert in, uh, so I uh, can't comment. Um, that would be a very interesting question that you could pose to uh, Rabbi Moshe Ben-Haim at Masora.org, uh, and I uh, suspect that you'd be able to get an answer from him on that. But Peggy, you don't, uh, you're, as, as a Noahide, you are not under uh, any particular obligations uh, around the Sabbath. So you have a lot of freedom, basically, to design the day uh, in a way that's going to have the most meaning to you. And again, the, the idea that was, was given to me was to, you know, focus on kind of the theme of the day, which is around being involved in learning and the world of ideas. Interestingly, that's an uh, a concept that was also suggested to me around the Jewish holidays. That when the Jewish holidays come up, you know, what do you do at Passover and at, uh, and at Hanukkah? Uh, we don't have a particular Noahide obligation uh, around those holidays. So what we can do is focus on learning about uh, what went on during those times, what, went, what the theme of those holidays is, and just focus in on learning ideas around them. Um, and uh, and go from there. And there's plenty of rich material around most of the holidays to uh, uh, keep us engaged in learning and understanding the ideas behind the holidays uh, and uh, what we can just gain from the learning there. Peggy, does that answer your question? And do you have any uh, follow-on questions from that? Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad that helps. We, we, we know I have a fair amount of freedom in all of this, and it is actually a really, uh, it's really a nice, a nice thing to be able to do, uh, to have, because, um, you know, certainly we want to focus our attention in the right directions, but uh, we can, uh, and, and we're not allowed to make up our own rituals or holidays or anything like that, but we can certainly focus on the theme of the day, uh, and we have a lot of freedom as to, as to how we do that. Okay, any other questions before we move on to Proverbs?
always happy to take questions. Okay. Thanks, Peggy. Naomi, any questions on your end? Okay. I'll assume a no. Um, and before I forget, because I have it noted at the very top of my notes here, we will not have class next week. Uh, there will be no class on April 11th. I have to be out of town. Uh, so we will resume the following week on April 18th. So no class next week. Okay. Well, let's open up the book of Proverbs. <laughs> Thank you, Peggy. I appreciate that. Um, let's open up the book of Proverbs to chapter 12. And I would like to do two verses together. Uh, and I think you'll see why when we read them. We are looking at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26 and verse 27. Chapter 6, verse, sorry, chapter 12, verse 26 and verse 27. And verse 26 reads, A righteous one excels over his fellow, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. A righteous one excels over his fellow, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now I started to go through that verse, and then I looked on at verse 27, which reads, He will not roast his prey of deceit, but the wealth of an honest person is precious. And Rashi sees verse 27 as a continuation of verse 26. And the, in, the wording of it seems to indicate that as well, because the, the second half reads the, of 26 reads, the way of the wicked leads them astray, and then immediately the first part of 27 reads, he will not roast his prey of deceit, which seems to be referring to the wicked person who is referred to in the second half of 26. So it seems to be uh, all, uh, all one thing. So let's do as we generally do at the beginning of these. Let's start by asking ourselves, what are the questions? And by that I mean, as we stare at those two verses, what kind of questions come to mind that things that seem odd or are not clear or don't make sense or that we would need to somehow define in order to understand clearly what the verses are trying to tell us. What kinds of questions might we ask here? A righteous one excels over his fellow, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. He will not roast his prey of deceit, but the wealth of an honest person is precious. Any thoughts on questions? Naomi, we're on uh, chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. I assume your internet connection is cutting in and out on Let me try a few here. First of all, the first part of 26 says, a righteous one excels over his fellow. And I would like to know, how does that work? How does a righteous one excel over his fellow? What, is, what does that mean? And then when it says the way of the wicked leads them astray, I'd want to know, what does it lead them astray from? And what does the first half have to do with the second half there? Because we have the righteous and the wicked, but they seem to be talking about different things. I mean, the righteous one excels over his fellow, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Somehow that, those don't seem to match uh, real good. Um, okay. Yeah, Naomi, what's the advantage and where will he go astray? Good. Uh, and what does it mean that the wicked will not roast his prey of deceit. That's kind of an interesting way to say that. Um, and why is the wealth of an honest person precious, and who is it precious to? And then in the first 
part of 26, we have a reference to a righteous person, but in the last part of 27, we have a reference to an honest person. So let's see if we can uh, <laughs> figure that out. Peggy, you said not roasting his prey, maybe he's too lazy to cook. Could be, but that's the, uh, I think the commentators take a slightly different approach on that, although that's a very interesting approach. Uh, you know, if he actually gets what he's, what he's looking for, maybe he's, uh, as a wicked person, he's too lazy to actually uh, cook his own food. So, could be. Um, and let's see. Uh, Peggy, you mentioned it convicts you not to be lazy. I'm not sure if you're referring to your previous comment or to the verse. And how to for being cautious. He looks out for his neighbor. Ah, okay. I assume that's getting to uh, the righteous person excelling over his fellow. So let's, let's look at that. How does a righteous person excel over his fellow? Well, a righteous person is involved in the world of ideas and thought, and he thinks through situations and analyzes consequences and considers what is best for everybody involved, and he operates in accordance with that mindset. So he will excel over his fellow in thought and in deed. In other words, he will think more wisely and deeply than his fellow, and he'll um, commit better deeds than his fellow on account of his righteousness. And that's presuming that his fellow is not operating at that same level. In other words, you know, somebody who maybe lives or works alongside him. The righteous person will have better consequences as a result of his, his involvement in the world of thought and ideas, and he'll have a richer life, and not necessarily richer in terms of money, but richer in terms of the quality of the life that he leads. He will have succeeded more in undoing his conflicts, and thus he will achieve a life full of satisfaction, knowing that he's living the life that Hashem intended for man. So that's the righteous person excelling over his fellow. Now the next part, the second half of verse 26, gives us, gives us a contrast, the wicked. So what's the way of the wicked? Well, their way is through deceit and deception and dishonesty. They operate, as we've discussed in previous classes, on the basis of their emotions, not on the basis of their intellect and they're constantly trying to satisfy those emotional desires that can't be fulfilled. Now, importantly, the way that the wicked person then conducts his or her life causes them to go further and further down that road. So once they try to fulfill an emotional desire, and it doesn't work, so they'll redouble their efforts to try another approach. But that just reinforces their incorrect thinking. And so they end up on a slippery slope that leads ever downward. Their way of thinking leads them further and further from the truth. So the verse is quite accurate when it says that the way of the wicked leads them astray. I mean, it gets them off the path of truth, and the more they stay on that missed path, the farther they get down a road that is farther and farther from the truth. If you think about truth as like a road that goes, you know, straight ahead in front of you, as far as you can see, and you veer off slightly to the left, and you stay on that veered off path slightly to the left, well, it, if you keep going and going and going, after 5 or 10 or 15 miles, you are a long way from that path that was ahead of you uh, to begin with, the path of the truth. So the way of the wicked tends to lead them 
further and further from the path of truth and the path that would really give them fulfillment if they actually stopped to analyze the situation. Now, the next reference is has to do with not roasting his prey of deceit. And I will suggest that the, this is a metaphor that he won't, the wicked will not get to enjoy the spoils of his deceit. And why won't he be able to enjoy it? Well, even though the wicked may sometimes be temporarily successful in their evil plans, they can't enjoy the deceitful spoils they've accumulated. They're constantly in conflict. They have to be concerned that their evil ways are going to be found out. After all, remember, they're dealing with dishonesty and deception and cover-ups and that sort of thing. So you have to constantly be in fear that you're going to be found out uh, you know, by people you have wronged. So uh, they have a great concern that their deceit is going to be discovered. So even though they may have the prey, that is, they captured the, uh, the object they were after, they will not be able to roast and enjoy it. Uh, so that when the verse says he will not roast his prey of deceit, he will not get the enjoyment uh, out of um, you know, his, his work for the day in the same way that a person who works honestly, earns an honest living, gets um, you know, a, a, a piece of meat or a, a bird or a whatever uh, with his, his money at the end of the day and goes home and roasts it and enjoys it and, um, you know, and is satisfied. So now, Peggy, you have raised a very interesting alternative explanation, which is that uh, he won't roast his prey of deceit because he's too lazy to cook, which could be true. Uh, because the wicked person doesn't want to go through all the uh, normal process of uh, earning a living honestly. He wants to take shortcuts. And so then it could be uh, that at the end of the day, when he finally uh, gets what it is he was trying to get, uh, he's too lazy to, you know, actually go to the work of preparing, you know, the prey that he got dishonestly to... Uh, to enjoy. So I, I can see where that could, could also be true. Now by contrast, in the last half of verse 27, we have the honest person. And here it says the wealth of an honest person is precious. Why is it precious? Because it was gained honestly. Uh, the wealth can be enjoyed with a clear conscience because the honest person knows he's gained it properly. So it's, it's precious because it represents wealth gained by just means. He's done it within, uh, within the, the realm of, of justice and truth and honesty and the way that God intended for people to operate. So the owner can truly enjoy it and rejoice in the enjoyment that it brings him. So he's operating in reality because he gained it by just and honest means. So it's precious to him. So the verse <clears throat> seems to be telling us about the life of the righteous and the honest person versus the life of the wicked. The righteous excel, the honest can enjoy his wealth, while the wicked are pulled further and further away from the truth and will not enjoy even the gains that they get because they're ill-gotten. Okay, any questions on these two verses? Okay, thank you, Peggy. So let's move on to verse 28 in chapter 12, and it reads, In the way of charity there is life, in its path there is no death. In the way of charity there is life, in its path, there is no death. So, what are the questions? 
What seems odd and unusual about that verse? In the way of charity there is life, in its path there is no death. Any questions that come to mind around that? I have a couple. First, what does it mean that there is life in the way of charity? Oh, good, Peggy, thank you. What is charity and how do you walk in that path? Yeah. So what, what does that mean? And, and, and when it says in the way of charity or in the path of charity, there's life. So what does that mean? Where is, what's the life? And on the flip side, on the back half, in its path, there is no death. Well, how can that be? Because everybody dies, or pretty much everybody. How can there be no death in the path of charity? So I'd like to take Rabbi Moskowitz's approach to this verse. And Rabbi, first thing is that Rabbi Moskowitz wants to define three kinds of people that we find named in Mishlei in the book of Proverbs. The three kinds of people are the Tam, the Yosher, and the Tzaddik. The Tam, the Yosher, and the Tzaddik. Now a Tam is a person that is totally free to do anything he desires, whether it's good or evil. There's nothing stopping him. And that can be a good thing. Why? Let me give you an example. Suppose there is a certain person who needs to fish for food, but they can't put a worm on a hook in order to do it. It just there, there's something that stops them from doing that, some emotional blockage. They can't force themselves to stick that worm on the hook. So they've got a, a blockage there, some kind of an emotional thing that just, oh no, I just can't do that. A Tom is a person who has the ability to do whatever he wants. There's nothing inherently stopping him inside his personality. He does not have a blockage like that. He's able to do whatever he wants to do. And a person is either born that way, um, uh, and uh, yeah, you either are born that way, or maybe you have some extreme uh, that doesn't ever particularly affect you. But on a practical basis, you don't have any blockages that, uh, that prevent you from doing something that you need to do. So that's Tom. And whenever we come across the term Tom in, in Proverbs, that's Rabbi Moskowitz's understanding. And, and he indicates this is a desirable trait. Why? Because you, you don't have any big conflicts. You don't have a a bunch of big personality issues that are stopping you from being able to to do what you need to do. Now, a Yosher is a person that studies. He investigates. He becomes a Chacham, a wise person. He has a love of truth. He has a desire to learn, and a love of learning, a desire to search for truth. That's a Yosher. A person actively is involved in studying and learning because they have a love of truth. Now, go back to a Tom for a minute. If you're a Tom, you have the freedom to become a Yosher. In other words, there's nothing stopping you. Um, you know, a Tom is either, is either naturally that way or through help he can undo whatever's stopping him. So a Tom can be a Yosher. But if a person is not a Tom, then there could be a powerful emotion in them that would not allow them to develop that love of truth and that love of learning. So the Tom is a guy that basically is not dealing with emotional blockages that prevent him from doing something. A Yosher is a person that loves truth and loves learning and desires to learn. So a Tom 
will probably make good decisions in everyday life because he isn't pulled strongly in one direction or the other by anything. But he doesn't know the subtleties of life because he's never been trained. He's not a thinker. Okay. The, the Yosher is the one who has moved into the realm of being a person who studies and learns and, uh, and is, is thinking. And keep in mind, these are all qualities on the inside. Now, a tzaddik is a person that loves justice. And, and we, we tend to translate that as a righteous person. And his emotions are drawn to justice. He hates evil. He can't tolerate evil. He is naturally drawn to do the just thing. When we talk about, uh, in the last verse, about the righteous person who's involved in the world of thought and learning and analyzing consequences and situations and helping the community and making good decisions for people, that's justice. He's, he's involved in, uh, in, in a greater view of the world you know, than himself. <clears throat> so Rabbi Moskowitz wants to suggest that the purpose of the book of Proverbs is to help you develop these three traits. And it is a development. You can't skip steps. Um, you don't have to be a perfect Tom in order to be a Yosher. Uh, but a strong emotion that you haven't undone could prevent you from being a Yosher and then exotic. But the sequence would be, hopefully you would become uh, enough of a Tom that, that you have the freedom to make the decision to be involved in learning, which now moves you into the realm of being a Yosher, and then ultimately you become a tzaddik, a person that loves justice. Uh, so, and a tom doesn't mean a tom doesn't have emotions. He may have emotions. Uh, it's just that they don't necessarily affect his decision-making process. So, when in, in the verse, um, it says, in the way of charity, there is life. Rabbi Moskowitz says the verse uses the term tzedek, which means justice, so that it should read, in the way of justice, there is life. In other words, the verse is talking about a tzedek, a person who has reached this level where they love justice and their emotions are drawn to justice and they hate evil. Now, how does that produce life? And, and not death. So Proverbs helps you remove the conflicts that you have in life so that you live a long life. It takes away from the qualities that shorten your life and helps you so you don't have conflicts. And those conflicts are the things that can end up shortening our life. So in, in making that, that progression, to becoming a tzaddik, you are one step at a time removing the conflicts from your life. And so uh, that helps you to have uh, a long life. So in the first half, it says in the way of justice, which is how Rabbi Moskowitz would interpret the word tzaddik in this context, there is life. That is, by living that life of the tzaddik, the just person, you've removed your conflicts and you're not fighting with reality, and so you can live a long life. Thus it says, there is life. Now, why doesn't it say, and, and it says, then in its path, there is no death. So, why doesn't it say, well, you'll just have a long life? rather than no death. And Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that the righteous person takes away the factors that shorten his life. In other words, insofar as what's in his hands, he takes away those things that make his life shorter. A random event is outside of his control. But within his control, he can affect a number of things, including his conflicts. And those conflicts are a big detrimental factor in a person's life. So the verse isn't saying that a person of justice will never die. 
it's saying that he'll avoid those situations within his control that could result in his premature death. Okay, let me pause now and uh, read comments here. And Naomi, you pointed out giving charities a way to help the, uh, uh, the poor uh, and by giving the money we, uh, we enable them to continue studying in, in Torah. Y yes, that is true. And, and we, we actually enable them to you know, meet their basic food needs too sometimes and uh, you know, basic needs that you, you need in order to be able to be involved uh, in the study of Torah. So yes, that is, uh, uh, that is true. Uh, that is true. Any other questions? Okay, good. All right, let's move on to chapter 13, verse 1. We finished up chapter 12. We're on to chapter 13. And this one reads, A wise son, musser of the father, elates, which is a type of fool, doesn't hear a rebuke. A wise, <laughs> very interesting grammar here. A wise son, musser of the father, Elates doesn't hear a rebuke. So, what would the questions be? Some of the translations that you may have may insert words in that first half in brackets. But if you look at just the words there, um, it says, A wise son, Musser of the father, might read discipline. A late doesn't hear a rebuke. And Naomi, you've asked, what is father's discipline? Okay, good. Yep, that would be a good question. I mean, we clearly seem to be missing a verb in the first half. Uh... And what's the relationship between the first half and the second half? Uh, and what's rebuke? Um, yeah, and I'm guessing, Naomi, your, uh, your translation perhaps reads, a scoffer doesn't hear a rebuke. Uh, my understanding is the Hebrew reads a late, which Rabbi Moskowitz says described as a it, it doesn't read scoffer, it reads late, uh, which apparently that translation has translated as scoffer. My understanding is that, that Rabbi Moskowitz describes late as a type of fool. So, Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say that there were three ways of interpreting this verse. Uh, one was that to become a wise person, you have to have control. Uh, you have to have a conscience. And it says Musser, which we've uh, talked about before, is, is sort of the science of the consequences of your life. Um, and that's a system. It's not just the conscience. Uh, so we're, uh, we're just, I'm going to just touch on that one as a, uh, as, as a possibility. Um, the second that he pointed out was that there were the, that the subject of the verse is the son, S-O-N, and it's talking about the relationship between son and father. And there are three kinds of relationships between sons and fathers. You can have a biological relationship. You know, one man begat a son. You can have a psychological relationship. So a person could be an adopted son but could still have a, a very close psychological relationship with their uh, adopted father. Uh, and the third 
is that it could be uh, referring to your teacher, who is kind of an intellectual father to you. Now, an intelligent person realizes the value uh, of a situation where he makes a mistake, or when someone shows you that idea, because they realize they can straighten it out then. In other words, if an intelligent person is shown that he's made an error, then it's an opportunity for him to fix it. And it's also an opportunity for him to go back and look at why did he make that error in the first place? What was the root cause of that? So the wise son is happy to hear musr, to hear correction, uh, if you will, or an explanation of uh, making a mistake from the father because he realizes that it's an opportunity for him to learn an important lesson and be able to correct a mistake that he made. While the lates can't tolerate hearing criticism of any kind. He just, he just can't stand that. So he won't hear it. So when it says rebuke, the rebuke in this interpretation would be referring to the, the criticism or correction that the father would be doling out to him or would be giving him in a particular situation but because he has that foolish type of mindset he can't tolerate hearing that criticism okay and yeah chastisement okay Naomi that's uh, yeah the, re the rebuke uh, and the correction could also be chastisement now there's a third way to interpret the verse and that is that it is telling an intelligent father how to deal with two different types of children if the child is a hacham, a wise person then the father gives him musr the father will tell him hey look you know you made a mistake here and here's why and the wise son will recognize that and will take that as an opportunity to grow. But if the child is a late, a fool, the father doesn't give him anything. Why? Because the rebuke will make things worse than not saying anything at all. Sometimes there are times when, you know, you don't want to rebuke someone because you know if you're, if you're paying enough attention, you know that they won't hear it. And all it will do is make your relationship with them worse. So in raising a child, you have to know each one individually and act accordingly. And there are times when it's better to say nothing than to try to rebuke a person or to rebuke a child. There's an old saying, you have to pick your battles, which is particularly true in raising children. There are times when leaving something alone is better than tackling it because what you'll do is you'll get resistance from the child and that'll make it even harder to help him. And knowing when to do that and when and how to approach the child when it's necessary, that requires wisdom and insight into consequences, the child's personality, and how they think. And we touched on that a little bit last week uh, in our study. And knowing how to do this uh, is an important aspect of becoming a wise and insightful person. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, let's see if we can do one more. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 2. And it reads... From the fruit of the mouth of a man, he will eat good, and the soul of the traitor is violence. From the fruit of the mouth of a man, he will eat good, and the soul of the traitor is violence. Any ideas about questions around that verse? the fruit of the mouth of a man he will eat good and the soul of the traitor is violence 
Okay, good, Naomi, thanks. From what's the fruit of speech here? What's the fruit of the mouth of a man? What does that mean? And when it says, what will he eat or he will eat good, what does that mean? Uh, and then I would add to that, what's a traitor? And why is the soul of the traitor violence? So Rabbi Moskowitz, excuse me, Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that while sometimes mouth literally means speaking, in this verse it refers to what's on your mind. And so I'll suggest that the fruit here refers to positive and true ideas that come out of the mind. From that, a man will eat good. That is, if his mind is focused on true ideas and concepts, if he's operating in accordance with reality, then he will eat good. That is, he'll reap positive consequences in the physical world, and he'll simultaneously eat of that good knowing that he's operating in accordance with the way of Hashem. So he's going to get positive consequences out of those thoughts. Now, a traitor is someone who betrays a friend, a country, maybe a principal. And in this case, Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that the traitor is a traitor against his own mind, against himself. He does that which is harmful to himself through his actions, and that eventually results in violence. And Naomi, you've asked why the soul is shown here and faithless. I don't know about the word faithless. Uh, I'm going off soul of the traitor is violence. Um, but it's, I think, getting to that the soul of a person who is acting and betraying himself is going to result in violence to his own soul. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily going to mean physical violence, uh, but the fact that the person is turning upon themselves uh, against himself seems to indicate that it is going to be a harm to his soul, which will be a violence to his soul. Um, now, that can also turn out to mean physical violence. And so the verse seems to be talking about the end results of the way that the person thinks. The person who is using his mind to good ends who's operating rationally and carefully analyzing situations, he'll have good physical end results. He'll eat good. While the person who is a traitor to his own self, that is, he's not taking into account what's good for him uh, in the long run. He's pursuing things that are not good for him. He is actually doing violence to himself. And if not corrected, uh, that could ultimately result in his destruction. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, uh, in that case, we will stop uh, here for tonight and continue on uh, with our next class.